0: Oh, Welcome to the State of the Garden This is the official podcast of the New Jersey Cannabis Industry Association I'm your host, Tom Marshall Welcome to State of the Garden. I'm your host, Tom Marshall. And continuing in the tradition of the last couple of podcast episodes I've done for State of the Garden, we again depart the Garden State. I recently spoke to a Canadian cannabis media company and to a Colorado cannabis food company. So from New Jersey, everything on this continent is basically westward. So no surprise that we're traveling west again, and this time all the way to the coast. Um, We will be catching up with New Jersey legislation in our very next episode. Don't worry. I haven't forgotten about the Garden State. Anyway, we all know how perilous starting and running a business is. We hear about it all the time. We know how much effort and money goes into a new business. There's usually a thin line above which you can make some profit if everything goes right. But if you upset the balance, if a law changes, for example, and it's unfavorable to you, you You have to make adjustments, and that can change your whole business formula. I have a friend who was an award-winning marijuana cultivator in Washington State who got forced out of business despite winning multiple awards for his various strains of weed and employing 60-plus people. When the laws kept changing, he finally had to close down. Uh, So now I felt it would be good to talk to an out-of-state grower on this podcast. So I'd like to welcome Eric Calhoun to the show. Hi, Eric. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on this early in the morning. And uh, I was excited to talk to you, Eric, when you introduced yourself as a California grower. I understand there's some bumps in the road for growers that we can talk about.
1: Yeah, it's been a little rocky at times. And uh, sometimes we feel like we're in the middle of of the movie Brazil, filling out our paperwork, but it's really exciting times. Oh um, yeah, I'm
0: a, I'm a stickler for paperwork myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you still growing right now? Uh, is your company still doing well?
1: Yes, we have uh, built 10 new cultivation beds for what we call light deprivation or light depth growing. And so we are in good standing, but not completely through the legal process
0: That's fantastic. I'd love to get into that. Um, I will do a little disclaimer here. Eric is an individual and does not speak for California, nor for all the growers in California. The stuff we talk about is going to be from your point of view only, uh, Eric. Uh, The reason I say that is because we want to show support to all states that are legalizing or already legal or contemplating it. It's difficult to legalize. There's some fortunes to be made and lost. But we all have to keep rowing the boat in the same direction. We're making progress. But it's good to know all sides of the story. And Eric, I hope I didn't foreshadow too much doom and gloom. How's life?
1: (laughs) Yeah, like like I said, life is exciting. I'd like to say that I represent the small Humboldt County grower. Um, If you talk to other people in the chain, we'll get into how California broke down their market. Uh, In previous podcasts, you talked about verticality in the market and uh so if you talk to different different people at different levels they'll have a different perspective but i've been around the Humboldt County scene uh which is legendary as the emerald triangle i was lucky enough to have a friend in high school whose dad grew and so early on i had summer jobs uh in the old guerrilla days tending plants And so I've seen it change into uh, small, and when medical came into the small farm legal medical, and when people literally came out from under the trees and were able to grow in the full sun for the first time, and then seeing this wave of legalization. So we have had some rocky years, uh, but but with the legal market, uh, we think that there there it will be a foothold, and that we we have a future
0: you're from Humboldt County, which in the illegal days uh, of prohibition, uh, got the reputation of having the best weed in the country. And that was kind of before indoor growing became a thing that that just, to me, that meant um, Humboldt County was the best place for outdoor grown weed. Is that correct? Or am I completely wrong about that?
1: That's my understanding. Yeah, there was—I uh, don't think indoor really took off in the '70s, and you really needed more modern energy efficiency before it was easy to do. Um, so, obvious, it was there in the '80s, but uh, it sprung out of really the San Francisco scene, and so the Emerald Triangle, which is Humboldt County, Mendocino, and uh, Trinity County, uh, they have the advantages of being very remote. And then they have, once you get, the coast is cold and foggy, but once you go inland, it just every hill you go over, it gets warmer and warmer. And you have what they call the Mediterranean summer, which is where you'll have a wet rainy winter and then once the rains stop in may or june you're not going to get a drop of rain all through the year and that's a huge advantage for marijuana growers uh that really helps you keep the quality of your plant it's literally not washing the thc crystals off your bud and then uh it's also it's just excellent growing conditions through the summer. So that's one of the reasons there. And then uh, I'd like to give a shout out to one of the most legendary growers in American cannabis history, the Mary Prankster Mountain Girl. Uh, When she was Jerry Garcia's girlfriend, she ran a mostly women's only cannabis club spreading information. So it was kind of trickling up north through Marin into, into the Emerald Triangle. And for instance, Mountain Girl's the one who she popularized. She's how to get seeds, separating the males and females, so you don't get seeds in your marijuana. So that's the kind of information that was flowing. So you had this hippie network going into these remote areas. That's
0: fantastic, and it's also sort of foreshadowed the um, industry's trend. Uh, Apparently, cannabis is one of the few industries. That's largely run uh by females in a higher percentage uh, than any other industry as far as I know, and I kind of like that aspect, and uh hopefully you know other minorities will be able to join and, and reap the benefits as well. but that's kind of cool that it sort of started out there. The main grower was was a woman.
1: Yeah, absolutely. that uh women's network of knowledge really really push things forward.
0: Tell me, so if I drove into um, your operation, uh, and I mean, if you gave me a tour of it, would I be looking at fields of marijuana? Or uh, do you have indoor cultivation
1: happening as well? So we have some simple hoop greenhouses, so it's kind of a mix in between. And there's, yeah, this greenhouse, and especially we'll get into uh, how we do this light deprivation, which simulates indoor conditions outdoor. Um, And also allows you to have multiple crops per year, like indoor growers have multiple crops per year.
0: The way way that you just said that kind of was funny, because I thought the whole point of indoor was to simulate outdoor, and now (laughs) you're
1: simulating indoor, outdoor. Oh, absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. And there's uh, indoor growers, by not completely simulating outdoor, you get some interesting expressions in the plant that... uh, that, that people value. Um, we can get into if it's better or worse than full season outdoor sun, but the market values this particular look that indoor has. So, uh, yeah. So what you would see, uh, we have a, we have a new area, part of getting our permit. We had to move our old outdoor garden and, uh, we used to grow outdoor under the medical permits. You could have up to 99 plants, parcel of land and so uh, would grow that and would hope to get two to three pounds per plant uh, but people don't like it uh, there's a I think it's wonderful pot and uh, one of your recent guests uh, pardon me I forgot his name but he was talking about the edible company and sun-grown uh, et- that's
0: yeah Peter, Peter Barsoom with
1: Nuka Foods in uh, Denver Colorado absolutely so uh, I we come from a culture where we, we value the sun-grown outdoor, too, but it has a particular look uh, grown full season. Um, all the bud kind of looks more similar. If you were to grow three different strains indoor and then the same three different strains full-term outdoor, they would just look more unique indoor doesn't mean they have more thc maybe they do maybe they don't but they just look more distinct um and people like that distinctness so it's been very difficult to sell outdoor outdoor full-term sunbud in california
0: strange it sounds uh however uh chemically which was what peter strived for the most natural, most organic, but also most consistent to become ingredients for for his complex foods that he was creating. Uh, So he mentioned sun-grown, but uh, are you saying that outdoor is less consistent necessarily as well?
1: From different site to different site, that might be true. So we still grow in the sun. So what we have is we have these hoop beds. We have beds that are, they're five feet wide and 50 feet long and we plant them super dense so there are two plants sitting side by side in a row and then they're about every 18 inches or so so we've got 64 plants in this 5 by 50 bed and it's got a hoop over it and what you do is uh to simulate the season so our goal is to get two harvests a year full term outdoors only by definition one harvest a year so we planted these plants. You plant them small and you plant them dense and initially you run lights. So give them extra light, which simulates the indoors. So they think that it's the middle of summer and the solstice and they're getting 18 hours of light a day. And then you, what they call flip them, which is put them in their flowering cycle. That first growth cycle is called the vegetative growth. The plants, they make strong, healthy roots, strong, healthy branches, and then uh the flowering cycle, which is making buds, that happens when they sense fall coming and it's part of the plant dying and trying to reproduce. So what you do in a light depth is you have these you have these tarps that are that allow zero light through. And so after the plant's been receiving eighteen hours of light a day, you drag the tarps over it and all of a sudden you're cutting it off at 12 hours a day. And so you're doing this in June where, you know, up we're pretty far North. So we might be getting 14 or 15 hours of natural sunlight. And then at the solstice, we're getting 16 plus Uh, you pull these tarps over at say at 8 PM and then pull it off at 8 AM. So they think that, Oh, it's fall. And then they enter the cycle, even though it's early summer and they would be growing bigger. So, like I said, on the outdoor, we were hoping for between two or three pounds per plant. In this, with our sixty-four, we'd be happy with a quarter pound per plant. Um, So we're, but you get multiple, you get multiple runs per year.
0: Now, are you still limited by the ninety-nine plants? So, twice, you know, so so if each plant produces three pounds at most, this is you're doing no, or, or do you have more than that?
1: The the ninety nine was in the uh, was in the medical days, and so oh, okay. they've gotten rid of that, and they understand now that growers want to grow in this style because the market pushed us away from this full term outdoor. So they call what's called canopy area. So the bed is five by fifty, so that's two hundred and fifty square feet of canopy area. And then we have 10 of those beds. So our permit right now, which is for the smallest level of farm, is for 2,500 square feet of canopy area. And so uh, how we divide that labor is it's myself, it's my partner, who's the operations manager, Zach, and then our other partner, who's president and CEO and handles all the high-level stuff of Humboldt Honeyflower Farms, which is is our, our company and our farm. Uh, so if those beds, like I said, we get 15 pounds per bed twice a year and 10 beds, we can grow 300 pounds with three main people and then plus the temporary work when it gets intensive.
0: That's incredible. So um, thanks for that sort of illuminating description of, uh, you know, and I'll also probably way too brief. We could go very deep if we wanted. Um, Uh, of, uh, you know, farming and, and cultivating marijuana, uh, in California. Um, I'd like to get into, or possibly rewind a little bit and get into some of the, the laws, the way that they've changed and the way that the, the laws can change sort of underneath your feet, uh, so to speak, like happened with my friend in, in Washington state and how you guys have navigated that terrain. And also, that's statewide. How does the federal illegality affect you? I guess that's two big questions.
1: Yeah, those are those are two very big questions. Let's start with on the difference between being illegal federally and uh legal statewide. Is you probably covered uh with your Washington friend? Being illegal federally means you can't take it across state lines. So California, Oregon, Washington, they're all legal states, but we can't, we can't take it across. We were sitting there uh, in the last couple years of where it was kind of in a gray area or the end of the end of medical and Nevada had just legalized and they were desperate for weed and no one could send it, send it to them. Uh, so that keeps the markets inside the state. I have to say, California is way luckier than most states because it is so large. Um, Southern California has so many people that there there really is a market. Um, Oregon, Washington, really Oregon especially have a very tough thing. I say their grower to civilian ratio is completely wrong. There are way too many growers in in Oregon too. People who to a potential market, it's just a small population state. So we are our saving grace without with being stuck inside the state is the huge population center in Southern California. So we have a much better shot than Oregon or Washington.
0: And it keeps that set up. Does that set up a situation um, for, uh, you know, smuggling? I guess if, for example, Washington and Oregon have almost no demand and way too much weed that drives the prices down and would enable people to smuggle it into California where the demand is higher uh, and sell cheaper weed. Does that happen? Is that going on?
1: Absolutely. Well, it happens in some places. I don't know if it goes into California because Northern California, um, in the end of season, the buying crunch is so extensive that, uh, that our prices have dropped when we're talking about legal growers, Oregon and Washington have gotten their systems online before California. So once you commit to growing legal, you, then you're, you can't smuggle it out. Last fall I was up in Oregon and talking to someone in the industry and they said that before the fall harvest, they already had a two year surplus of marijuana submitted into their system Wow, That had to be sold before that year's could be sold. So those growers are just in trouble. California is going to see a shortage right now, partially because of how difficult it is to, to get fully through the process. But
0: let's take a quick that's step. Got, that, that's good for you, though, right? I mean, prices staying high and being unable to come in from the, the cheaper states. That's sort of an example of federal illegality, possibly helping you.
1: Yeah, it it does. It does. It keeps it keeps the Oregon the Oregon stuff out. We did have a couple of very difficult years before full legality where there was no white market. So even the ex- existing dispensaries didn't really have to prove where they got their stuff. So basically everything has been black market for the past or what you'd call gray market for the past 2 years. So this year is the last year that it's it's a light gray market. And then next year is going to be gray. Uh, the state of California does not have their system together to fully what they call track and trace, which is the process of proving where, where your marijuana comes from at every step of the way from the small plant to the final product. Uh, Uh, I hear about track and trace a lot. Yes. Yes. Let's go through that in a second, but let me take a quick step back and say that I've seen what I call the three different eras of growing and of marijuana in Humboldt County. So the first was the old days, the illegal days where it was all guerrilla growing and uh after you got the militarization of police in the 80s. So the the first big change happened so the 70s the hippies were there and growing and then through the 80s the police enforcement and the legendary camp, the California Uh, eradication of marijuana project. Uh, They got a lot of paramilitary gear. Our ranch that we grew on literally in the late 80s and through the 90s had these camp officers uh, with semi, with automatic weapons on ATVs patrolling the road. There were helicopters in the sky and if they saw a plant through the canopy, camp, camp officers would rappel down and stomp your plants out if they found a grower's shack, they'd break windows, try to destroy your food, sometimes spray paint things, they'd cut your, your water and fuel lines. Oftentimes when they talk about the environmental impact of growers, oftentimes, not to be too contentious because there are excellent law enforcement out there, but oftentimes it was law enforcement cutting fuel lines causing massive fuel spills in water wow. areas. And so our that this property that we grow on, um, my my partner who owns it, his dad bought it in the eighties, and it was too hot to grow on. They tried to grow a couple times and got their plants stomped out. In our creek bed, we have what I call our war on drugs relic. It's a camper shell of a pickup truck that, when they stomped out a garden, uh, they couldn't. The guy who was managing it ran into the hills, and so to punish him, they tore his pickup apart and threw the camper shell in the creek. And it's filled with mud and rocks and it's hopeless (laughs) to move. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That sounds
0: like, uh, uh, you know, another example of change for the better, uh, legalization that is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So on this property, when medical came through, uh, my partner, he, he started growing out there. Um, his dad grew his dad grew elsewhere. They didn't, it was too hot out there under in the camp years, but once they got the medical permits and it was incredible to see like people putting greenhouses out and you'd post your medical permit outside. And you know, if officers dropped from the sky and came (laughs) to look at it, they'd see you had your permit and they'd turn away. And one big, one big thing when people talk about how much more potent marijuana is now, it has to do with you could grow out in the open. So I I need to make one small correction too. I'm not from Humboldt County. I'm from North Carolina. And in high school, uh, a friend of mine who's from Humboldt County, his dad grew and his mom that his mom wanted to go back to grad school and chose one of the fine North Carolina universities. So he moved there and I met him there. And so then I would go to I would go to California and work on the plants. And I remember, I remember walking through with his dad in this property in Trinity County that they were growing on. They weren't growing there. Um, and there was this magnificent grove of lilies. There was this spring that bubbled up every morning, and then in the afternoon it would dry out. And there was this hole in the tree canopy that got some sunlight and these six-foot-tall lilies, and we walked in, and he had stealth-planted these gorgeous marijuana plants in the middle, and you couldn't see them until you you know, pretty much got on top of them. I
0: remember those pictures from high times of stealth gardens like that were oh. incredible.
1: Oh, that's when, <laughs> that's when I went from enjoying marijuana to really being in love with the plants, and I asked him, I was like, oh, have you ever thought about taking more trees out? And he's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this this grove has, it gets five hours of direct sun. That's the perfect number. You wow. don't want less, and if you have any more than five hours, you're in danger of being spotted from the air.
0: Eric, let me ask you, uh, just because it occurred to me like three times when you were talking before and again now, um, a noob, a farmer noob question. <laughs> um, and that is, are these plants, you talk about, um, you know, growing roots for them and stuff and flowering them, they don't last, uh, like, they're not perennial, they're annuals then? Yes, they're annuals. They're annuals. Okay, okay. So, uh, I, I suppose at some latitude, even annuals are perennials, right? Is that is that correct?
1: Yeah, if you keep them in good conditions, if you never really enter deep winter... Then it'll kind of limp through. I don't really know about getting a, if you're going, asking about a second harvest off the same plant. um, Yes. I don't, I've never really heard much of that. Even in uh, places like Jamaica, they would have a, a spring crop, but those were small plants. Those weren't the, they would have like small dwarf plants. They wouldn't find even in Jamaica, they wouldn't keep their plants alive all year. So so. you're
0: thinking that the plants when they're, when they're young and virile is kind of their best, uh, opportunity for, for
1: creating a great great bud. And then second time around, maybe not so much. Yeah. They're just made to die off. So they go through their veggies, through their vegetative stage. Then they go through their flowering stage. And in, in the wild, where they would breed, you would have male and female plants. The female plants produce the flowers, which are buds. What you're smoking is is a flower. And then the males would produce the pollen. And when you pollinate them, you'd have the buds with seeds in them. So what I was talking about, what example of what Mountain Girl popularized is, hey, kill off the male plants and your the females will, will go into flower, but you won't get seeds. So she said, I see.
0: Now, now, do you grow from seeds or do you grow from uh, 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 clones or whatever it would be called?
1: Yes, this is a great discussion. So we used to grow from seeds, and there are some great reasons to grow from seeds, but there are also great reasons to grow from clones. We are currently growing clones. Um, the old days, so the difference with uh, seeds and clones, there's and you talked about the plant life force. There really is something about seed plants that are really just full of life and mighty. You talked about the high times photos. And if you want a marijuana plant that is 18 feet tall and 15 feet in diameter and is going <laughs> to produce 18 pounds of marijuana, and this is completely possible, you grow wow. from seed. Oh. Uh, and they have this, they just tend to have better, uh, plant structure. If you kind of think of the platonic ideal of a tree with just a beautiful, uh, trunk and branch versus like kind of a scraggly tree that's like kind of growing up inside of itself and is a tangled mess, clones are more clones, clones kind of top out at a certain, at a certain rate. I talked about the outdoor plants. The goal was always like just to top over two pounds on average per plant. And you do well versus a seed plant being able to grow, you know, 10 pounds or whatever.
0: So I understand how seed might be the ideal, but business, you know, reality comes into play. So what do you guys do?
1: Well, so the thing with clones is you get a much more consistent strain. Uh, this is where you get into the different types of marijuana and the strains. Ah, okay. And uh, you've got the how the bud will come out is going to be the genetics of it. It's genetic lineage and then the phenot, and then the environment. And that produces what they call the phenotype, which is how it's actually ex- it's the expression of the genes And seed plants, you get much more phenotyping. So you can have all these, uh, you know, all the, well, number one, you'll grow males and females at a 50% rate uh, with seeds. And you can try to cheat that ratio by manipulating the temperature that you germinate your seeds, but you're still going to grow males that you have to kill later. Um, So what you do with clones is you have a mother plant and you you use a scalpel and you just slice it at what they call the nodes plants they have the main trunk and then at each node it's, it's biologically active it can grow a uh, it can grow a root it can grow a leaf it can grow a branch from a node Al- that's
0: almost the stem cell of a, uh, of a plant
1: yeah yeah I, I think that's I, I don't know quite enough science but I think that's basically accurate um, I, don't, I don't either. <laughs> so you, sli- yeah, you slice it at the node from the mother, and then you add, so they've got these root hormones. Uh, we grow all organic, although there's an asterisk there. One, at, one consequence of federal illegality is there's literally no such thing as organic marijuana, because organic is a USDA designation. So while it's illegal federally, we can't have an organic label. So there's not a clear labeling in the market. Um, I see. But anyway, see. so once you take the, once you take the clones, uh, with this rooting hormone to make sure they have roots, you put them in these little trays, uh, with this foam that can absorb water and it's in a climate, they grow roots and you hold them for, uh, about two to three weeks, a little more than two, a little less than three. Some strains are more vigorous than others. And once they root, then you transfer them to a small growing pot um we have so to finish up and to finish up the point the clones will have a much more consistent phenotype so if you have say girl scout cookie and you grow 20 girl scout cookies outdoors and then you grow our bed of girl scout of girl scout cookies from clone the clone bud will all be more similar the Girl
0: Scout Cookie, of course, being the um, cannabis cup award winner uh, a couple years ago.
1: Yes, yes, very classic. It is a OG Kush cross Durban strain. <laughs> Durban being a sativa. Um, wow, and a fruity sativa and OG Kush. One funny thing on growing: a lot of people think it's the the OG like original gangster like kush originated in pakistan and india so they think og kush is the pure india pakistan but og kush goes back before anybody used og for original gangster the legend on that is that a a california grower mixed their og kush mixed a, a true kush from pakistan or india with this uh thai lemon sativa and his friend smoked it and said, oh, my God, this is grown in Pakistan. He said, nah, bro, it's ocean grown. <laughs> OG. <laughs> OG, yeah. So OG was ocean grown until Cypress, the rap group Cypress Hill uh, shouted it out and turned it into OG original gangster. So there's confusion. It's actually a hybrid and not truly the original from from Afghanistan. But uh Wow, there's some great uh, culture history there.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Eric. That's awesome. <laughs> um, I was wondering outdoors if you are uh, more susceptible to say insects or any weird, um, you know, things that you probably aren't indoors.
1: Yeah, it's more likely that you'll get. You'll get some kind of thing, although when you grow your plants close together, whether in the beds or indoors, if you do get an outbreak, it's more likely to be catastrophic. The individual outdoor plants, it's more likely like maybe one plant gets it, but others, others, others won't. But there is, um, there is one thing that, um, we taught that about outdoor that's yet to be settled so talking dipping into regulations for a second uh, the state has not really finalized where their mold levels are for what's acceptable so there's this kind of debate what's acceptable amount of mold level now it is physically impossible to grow marijuana outdoors and have zero percent mold And people have been doing this forever. So obviously 0% mold isn't a problem. If you buy a can of beans, there's a standard for the amount of rat poop and cockroach legs that can be in it. And we would all love for that number to be zero, but it is so hard to grow things and have things you don't want in it. So that number is not zero. Um, But there's a movement um, in some people with medical And um, there's some paranoia in the outdoor growers that people who want to grow only lab-grown corporate marijuana to exist to, to require that number to be essentially zero. So there is some fear among outdoor growers when the regulations are finally done that it's going to be extremely difficult for the outdoor grower to reach the mold levels, even though it's proven over the years that it's fine, that you know it's it's safe, and maybe there needs to, and that that in that is an example, Eric, of what
0: we we're kind of talking about. Um, and I don't know the uh, the specifics of my of my friend in Washington, um, uh, but you know, one regulation after another kind of stacked up against him, and he had to he had to shut down. Um, that could be something that. You know, craziness like uh, uh, that, you know, that could affect the entire California growing industry if they made the mold level way too low. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, you could have even if they corrected it, if you had one year where all all the outdoor growers, if 75 percent of their marijuana didn't pass, I mean, that would just be catastrophic. We're not in a position to survive a catastrophic year. Uh, we kind of had a similar one. Actually, last year you're talking about insects. We had last year is going to go down in history in our farm and in Humboldt as the year of the russet mite plague. Uh I wow. hit fifty five percent of my beginning of year targets uh at the end of the year after this. There are several types of mites that growers know. There are these spider mites that are act like spiders and they'll go into the buds and make webs and will just completely ruin your webs. Uh indoor growers know this. Uh you have to indoor growers you have to scrub your grow room between between harvests, you know, to keep it clean. Um, and so we have these russet mites, they're microscopic organisms. Uh, you need a 200 X microscope to see them and they'll hitch a ride on the legs of flies. So they're the parasites on these flies and then the flies will land on, on your crop. Uh, there's some, Humboldt cons- conspiracy theories around the origin of russet mites. Some people think that the Oregon <laughs> DOT was spraying them because they also like to eat thistles, which are these super annoying thorny plants that grow on roadsides. Um, and other people think that, you know, planes have been spraying russet mites to ruin, to ruin farmers. Um, but either way, wow. um, the our unofficial estimate is about two thirds of all growers had russet mite problems last year and so uh we missed it. They're microscopic. So we were looking our plants didn't look like right. The leaf the leaves were curling up and looking unhealthy and we thought it was a pH problem in our water or a nutrient deficient because we couldn't see anything. So it spread way right. way too late and we had to kill all these plants and cut out stuff. And russet mites when they feed on the plant, they actually inject a toxin into the plant. So anything they've bitten oh, will never actually grow right again and it won't finish out. So we had- that's incredible. So that's like an example, uh you know, n-
0: you know, farming uh, is perilous business, uh, even without regulations changing and stuff like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, we still grow organic. We were able to pull it to pull back a little bit and uh, still keep it organic. I mean, other people, I'm sure, sprayed really nasty stuff that will never leave your bud. Uh, there's some there's some agents that people spray that it'll even if you do it when they're very very young, it'll enter the the actual plant material and go into the flower, um, so there's some really nasty stuff we one of the main rules of uh, any pest management is that your pest will will grow a tolerance to whatever your spray so we just we used five different organic products and just rotated them and the other thing. Uh, Really, the, the fundamental part of taking care of the plants, which is a huge part of the work, is when people visit our farm, they can't believe how much leaf material we take off our plants. Um, if you saw our plants, uh, they look, I call them poodles.
0: <laughs> They're com. Uh, you, you over they look over trimmed kinda right. Completely <laughs>
1: overtrimmed. The goal is that if you're fifteen people like to see this huge sea of green that there's no there's no space between the green, but when I see that I get anxiety and think that there can be pests living in there, or you get this powdery mildew that can get there. You want airflow between your plants, so we strip them. Our goal is that if you're fifteen feet away from the bed, you can see all the way through the bed, you can see the dirt. So you can see the stems. But I thought
0: that I thought the leaves would be crucial to
1: absorb uh, sunlight for photosynthesis. You leave, you leave enough leaves. I mean, they'll get bushy, and then you hack them back, and you just have to learn that plants love to be hacked back. It's kind of a nerve wracking experience the first couple <laughs> times. And even people who understand, um, we've got a we we've got someone who helps us, and he grows, and he's like. I would be doing this to my plants, but because it's your plants, it's just terrifying.
0: Wow. Do leaves have a trace amount of good stuff in them or not worth extracting at all?
1: Uh, Yeah, they absolutely do. Uh, Not so much THC. A lot of people um, in the medical side will juice, they'll say juice raw leaves, uh, especially for like cancer treatments or for some other stuff. I don't know as much about that as other people, but...
0: Maybe that can be
1: like an auxiliary uh, product yeah. or
0: or something when they start testing that stuff more and finding more great stuff inside the yeah. uh, plant.
1: But if you have a good, a good plant, it's going to get the leaves that you're taking off will get frosty with THC. You take off a lot of plants, a lot of plant matter that does have THC. But getting back to clones, so our plant maintenance is extra arduous because the clones, like I said, they don't grow as pretty as seed plants. So they're sending all these branches kind of up inside itself. And so it's even (laughs) stuff that will, it'll technically make a bud, but it's just, no one wants to see that in a pound. And one of the big changes over the years, uh, also that has to do when people say that bud is much stronger now. So in the old days, everything that came off the plant, they used to say, if it's the size of your pinky nail, it needs to be trimmed and go in the bag. And that was, you know, when it was super scarce and illegal and prices were, say, $4,000 a pound. Once the medical came and the risk went way down and people were growing way more, buyers got to be pickier and people trying to sell it would just stop. They stopped including smaller and smaller buds. So, What, what is the price per pound right now? Uh, it's jumping around and it really, it, it really depends on what strain. Okay. So for outdoor, we've sold bud for under $400 for 400 and under from last year to get rid of it, especially the last of the outdoor from, from that was grown from last year. This is the first year we're growing zero, zero outdoor and, and all, and all beds. So indoor really top shelf indoor can still go for 2000 a pound. Um, it's got this, it's got this distinct look. So when we grow light depth and it takes on the look of indoor, we're hoping there's this kind of middle tier that's settling out for light depth. Sometimes they call it mixed light. Um, and that we're hoping we've got some gorgeous girl scout cookie, some thin, the thin mint phenotype, that we're hoping we're <laughs> really hoping we can get 14 for it came out it's some of the best stuff we've ever grown so we're hopeful
0: Eric uh, this makes me think so much work that you guys are doing do you guys uh like in growing season well first of all when is growing season and when do you get time <laughs> off
1: yeah so growing season on site is say April through October or November and there's a big change in the way we're growing. We've actually made our life way harder. In the old in the outdoor way, you grow these big beautiful plants and there's a rush in April to get stuff in the ground and you know, you've got to do stuff in starting in February. You have to either plan to buy your plants or you're managing an indoor growing situation. We took our cloning such after the russet mite disaster which came from a tainted clone source, we took all our cloning operations in house. Um so you've either got to have someone managing that or so it sounds to me like you only have maybe December and
0: January. Yeah, off.
1: but if you've got a team, so I'm not responsible for the cloning. So I actually do have, I've, I've got an off season, which I spend in North Carolina at a music studio that I'm also partners in. Um, Great. But uh, So I get there in April and there's a huge rush to get plants in the ground. If you were growing these full term plants once they were planted, then you're done there, and you just if they're quality plants, you just have to do a couple rounds of cleanup. This poodle cut, um, that I call it, and then there's a big crush for harvest in which will happen in October. And so the big thing in Humboldt County is when does the rainy season start? So in a stressful we've like I mentioned before, we've got this Mediterranean summer where we expect not a drop of rain in June, July, August, maybe get a couple rain showers in September, but you're hoping it's going to be beautiful into November, but it can just flood in October. 2016 was legendary as the most rain Humboldt County got since 1958 uh, the it settled in around the 10th of November in that opening weekend we got 20 inches of rain in three days Oh my and god! S-
0: well that's ve- like we hear a lot a lot from you and it's so interesting which is why I kept asking you questions about California specific growing stuff and, and your specific um, situation Eric. But um, early on, you mentioned um, sort of the vertical uh, integration. And and over here, what that means um, is that if you would get a permit, it's for cultivation, extraction, and dispensing. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what happens, just so people can draw parallels uh, here in New Jersey, um, what happens to your weed after you grow it? How do you then
1: sell it? Like, what what happens... Yeah. So let's go through the track and trace program. Um, so when we get our, when we get our clones, um, the clones are labeled with, they've got these stamps, they've got QR codes. Um, and so you label and then you label your plants and then you get them through the nursery. And then once you put them in the beds, then you, you put a stamp on every plant and in the database it says these 100 plants came from this batch of clones, and they're going in this bed. And so we grow that, we go through harvest, we register in the harvest. okay, this dry room has the stamps of these plants, and then um, there's a the curing process. So once you hang once you hang plants, um, there's there's this whole process of drying and curing. I say that the quality of marijuana, there are three things that all have to come together for excellent marijuana. That's number one, genetics. Number two, how well you're growing the health of your soil, how much you feed your plants, how much you care for your plants. And then number three, the quality of your cure and finish. If you botch any one of those, you're not going to have good marijuana. Um, So we've got a drying space that we hang. It's cool. Um, There's a lot of debate and changing, and this is an exciting time when we can actually have science coming into marijuana. So it used to be, and you knew you wanted to dry your plants out in about a week, but people would would dry them out maybe at 75 to 80 degrees to get them to finish. But a lot of the science uh, with terpene, I don't know if you've covered terpene production in plants. Uh, Terpenes are a class of chemicals that are responsible for all the flavors in marijuana. So if you've got a bubble gum, Uh, if you've got a blueberry, the kush has this distinctive like oily, sour thing going on. Those are all from terpenes. Terpenes produce the myriad of flavors in cannabis. Um, So the terpene people are saying actually that if you cure your marijuana about 65 degrees and 60% humidity, which is a little cooler and slightly damper than I would expect. And that's optimal for preserving your terpenes. Um, that's incredible stuff. So, uh, under, yeah. So once you're so cured, once you're cured then, then you got a package. <laughs> yeah. So what happens in California are, we just have a cultivation license in the old school. We would have trimmers and what's lovingly known as trim camp, uh, you have all these people coming in from all over the world. It's really fascinating. Um, they come to Humboldt County. I just met some Argentinian guys uh, who are coming here from work. You get Europe, East Coasters. I've come in for some seasons. The locals call them trimigrants, and they're looking to work on the farm. So it used to be that in our, we'd have a trim space in our barn, And they'd work up there, and it could take up to six weeks. You know, if you grow three hundred pounds of marijuana, then you know you you might have nine people living on site, and for six weeks to finish that work. And so, yeah, it's a it's a huge thing, and obviously all kinds of hijinks and. go down in that but under uh the cultivation license uh we're required to pass our marijuana on to distributors who handle the trim who handle the trimming and they're taking that into town and uh professionalizing it which is really interesting um the thing that i love about it is it could be that our year ends six weeks earlier um which oh i see so now you uh tell me
0: if this is right. So you cut the plant down, hang it for the curing process, and then a truck pulls up and someone who is not related to your farm takes it away. And then that's it. You don't That's see it the anymore.
1: dream. It hasn't happened yet, but that's what's supposed to happen going forward. <laughs> that's exactly how it, I see. and, uh, the, so, um, they take it and deal with that. So it's, trim camp can be fun, but we'd love to be done early and it's a huge burden on farmers. So if you think about it, you've put all your time, you put all your money into this thing all year. You've bought dirt, you bought amendments, you bought things to feed your plants. Then you needed help with harvest. So you had to pay these people. You have to pay your trimmers to make the buds sellable before you ever get a dime back. So it's been, it's always been a huge crush on farmers to pay for that. So there is, cause it's kind of at the end of the season, you've all, you've been
0: money out for, for months and now you have to, you have to yeah. pay for trim camp. All the all the work. Yeah. I see and that's one of
1: the reasons prices have dropped. Uh, buyers can just be just ruthless. They can, there's always a more desperate grower who can't pay his trimmers. And most of the things that go wrong uh, in Humboldt County, Like most of things like theft happen because, say, you know, the farmer is broke and can't, you know, can't pay and things ripple out from Uh, there. That's a very common source of.
0: What percentage of growers would you say have
1: have filed to go legal? Do you think there's still more illegal growers? Oh, absolutely. The estimates are there are 30,000 growers in Humboldt County alone and about 1,500 have applied to go through the process. Oh my God. So we're really hoping. (laughs) So now like that's that sort of,
0: That almost pits grower versus grower in a way, right? Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So it's been really a mess and people can be really picky. We've had two horrible seasons in a row selling our pot that have put us really on the edge. Uh, There was a reason you asked me if we were doing okay financially because we were on the (laughs) edge and we're hoping being in this smaller pool of growers in this system is going to be a huge advantage. Wow, that's amazing. Well, thanks for going
0: legal. I think Eric, <laughs> we think so too. <laughs> I hope. I hope it. Yeah, I mean, I hope it helps uh, overall the you know the weed supply uh, for California. It sounds like it could kind of be a stabilizing factor. It could. It could. Uh, We're, we've still uh, and, got and our fingers. Possibly fin-
1: reduce competition in yeah. a way. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and it, it. Hopefully, it. There, there are good things about making the market less sketchy and more transparent and. You know, we've had incidents where, you know, we've, de- we're supposed to get, you know, many tens of thousands of dollars from a dealer and they can just, they can just take it. And you have no legal recourse. So. Right. I understand.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Got it. Well, uh, Eric, uh, we've gone, I've taken uh, o- about an hour of your time and. That's sort of my podcast listening limit personally. So I want to I stop here, but um, I know you wanted me to mention some of your uh, contact info. Uh, you can find Eric Calhoun at EMC, the number two birds, the number one stone. So it's at EMC, two birds, one stone. That's his personal Twitter. Uh, Instagram, his farm is at Humboldt Honey Flower. And his Gmail for legal inquiries only. Uh, Eric would be happy to answer your questions at Humboldt Honey Farms at Gmail.com. I'd love to invite you back maybe in six months or so, and uh, you can tell me um, how things are going, you know, once you kind of enter into this new phase where you just package your plants. I mean, uh, your plants just get taken away for packaging by someone else. Plus how this season goes for you. I'd love to give you the update. Thanks for the invite. And thanks for having me today, Tom, Eric, tremendously interesting stuff. And, uh, and you have now the record for the longest, uh, state of the garden podcast. And, uh, I I hope people find it as interesting as I did. Great talking to you, Eric. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Tom. Have a great day.